Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Mike Coe, and Steve Grasso. Ahead on Fast, the crude collapse, oil dropping nearly 9% to start the week. Energy stocks among the worst performers on the S&P. Is today's drop a sign of a global slowdown ahead or just a bear market head fake? Plus, the Bitcoin bounce, the cryptocurrency now back in the black for the year. Bitcoin surging more than 16% in the past week. What is behind the rebound and where do we go from here? And later, AMC getting into a mining company may not be a one-off. Why this meme stock might not be done doing, quote, transformational deals that have nothing to do with movies or popcorn. But we start off with a massive milestone for Tesla. The stock climbing back into the green for the year after surging more than 8% today. It's the biggest one-day jump since January. That move adding nearly $85 billion to Tesla's market cap. More than entire... Ford or GM. The gains coming after the company announced it would look into splitting its stock and paying out a dividend to shareholders. Tesla helped lead markets higher with the tech-heavy Nasdaq rising more than 1.3%. So what do we make of this move? Because it does seem that these sorts of moves, these have been the big events for Tesla, Tim. They've been monsters. And if you go back to the August of 2020 uh, stock split, it, it put the stock up, you know, by my math, about 75% over the course of uh, the next couple weeks. The S&P inclusion for Tesla also later on that year was worth about 115 percent over the course of about 22 sessions. If you look at Tesla and their move off the bottom along with markets, it's about 55 percent over the last 20 sessions, which is very Tesla-like. Uh, and again, this, some of this is just a function really of Tesla's role as the high beta, uh, high multiple tech company that sits at the top of the leaderboard. Um, the fact that we've seen these types of moves for Tesla by this rabid and certainly very allegiant fan base, which is also their investor base, um, doesn't really surprise me. They've opened up factories. They are yeah. one of the biggest, I mean, they are a mega cap tech stock. And if we are to say that that is where you go to for safety, Steve Grosso, then why not Tesla, even if there are these valuation well, arguments against it? Right. So you just brought it up. So they opened up a, a $7 billion plant outside of Berlin. The Eurozone is actually buying more EVs for the first time them buying diesel-generated vehicles. This is a company that owns its own supply chain, the cream of the crop in the EV world. Where, where else would you go to your point? So when you look at the chart on this, when you talk about a stock split, we know, you know, Karen could speak to this better than anybody. Does nothing for shareholder value at, at all, yet people will march into the stock and probably buy it up another $200 from the present level. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely could happen. It wouldn't be surprised at all. Although I have come around to the idea that once you split and you have a lower price stock, you do allow a retail press, mostly retail, to be in it to trade options where one lot of options are not prohibitively expensive as it would be on a super high stock. The dividend thing I don't really understand. I don't think of them as a dividend company like Google, right. uh, mature, but not a dividend payer. So I don't really get that when you think about two or three years ago, discussion of 
Can they fund themselves? You know, Amazing. will they be able to issue debt, which obviously they, they clearly were. Those converts are deeply, deeply in the money, so they're not even debt anymore. That transformation is really quite extraordinary. I think I, I don't understand the dividend thing. You could maybe have a very small dividend just to be a technically a dividend uh, payer so that so that you're allowed to be in included some, in, right, some in various portfolios funds. that need dividend income. But I mean, good for them. It's, this is really quite an extraordinary story. Too expensive for me. Yeah, the options point of it is a good one. I mean, we had this discussion when Amazon announced its stock split, Myco, and, and Tesla options are usually very, very actively traded in the options world. As I understand it today, they were monster. There was monster activity. Yeah, we we saw this also before other splits. That's that's fairly typical. I think it's important to remember that in these very high dollar stocks, sometimes one of the reasons that you do see that elevated options premium is so that people can get exposure to the stock or even to a round lot equivalent for significantly less capital than it would require to actually go out and buy the shares. So if it's going to cost you a hundred thousand bucks to go out and buy a round lot of Tesla. You can get into it, uh, you know, using oftentimes spreads, which is another way that you can mitigate the cost. But, you know, just going to what Karen was saying, there isn't much sense to me when you have a fast growing company in trying to return capital to shareholders in a business that is as capital intensive as this one. And the interesting thing is that Tesla's CapEx has typically been a tiny fraction of what it is for the other large sort of legacy automakers. I mean, we're talking Ford, General Motors, Toyota, and Volkswagen. And as they go from being a niche and basically the in initial player of the luxury electric vehicle market to being a mainstream player, one should only expect that their capital expenses would actually, expenditures would rise somewhat significantly. So we're talking about not one billion or one and a half billion, but seven or eight billion dollars a year potentially. So, you know, returning capital to shareholders doesn't seem necessary or, or sensible. But, you know, sometimes this company will say things and throw these trial balloons out there, but it isn't necessarily something that's going to happen. And the master of the trial balloon thrower um, is certainly Elon Musk. But you, you're bringing up a good point. Steve brought up this point. Um, in terms of CapEx and in terms of their reliance on, you know, China capacity at one point was China was half of capacity, one third of sales. Berlin and Texas reduce reliance on China. And to the extent that at least major expenditures have been, you know, ha have been put in the books and, and they've come on the other side. Uh, I do think it's, it's worth noting. I, it's, it is interesting why the dividend, Karen, you know, why do you feel the need to do it? And, and this is a company that, again, is slated to make you know, 12 bucks a share roughly in 2022, almost 20 bucks a share if you believe you know, a handful of the folks in the street out there, which still makes it a 50 times multiple. But again, a company that's growing dramatically and, and they are growing their sales. Yeah. Steve, you're making the fundamental case for Tesla. But in terms of the stock split alone, once upon a time, we might not have been sitting here saying that this could possibly be a reason to buy a stock. But in this world, in the day and age we live in, is it a reason to buy the stock? Steve. When you have right way splits in this. Yeah. When you are sorry about that. When you have right way splits in the stock, it, it always in, in this day and age, it's always going to rally the stock. When you have wrong way uh, splits in the stock, reverse splits, it's always going to be the death star, star for the stock. But when you have a stock like, um, like Tesla, this is a name that is, to Karen's point, we're worried about them going out of business a handful of years ago. Now we're not worried about that anymore. We're worried about what is he going to do next? What trial balloon, balloon as Tim said, is he going to lay out there? 
Is it a battery? I remember years ago we were talking about the stock. Is it a battery company? Is it a car company? Is it a technology company? Yes. The answer is yes. So whatever you, whenever you think you have a bear case to nail him down, he surprises you. And that's a bad place to be if you're a bear. All right, let's switch gears here. Apple finishing in the green today. The stock is now 10 days in a row. It's longest winning streak since 2010. The company basking in the afterglow, becoming the first streaming service to win a Best Picture Award at the Oscars. Apple's only been in the biz with Apple Plus for three years. They won for the movie Coda. One negative headline, though, for the company reports that Apple is cutting production for its new iPhone by about 20 percent due to weaker than expected demand. This report comes out of uh, out of Japan. We've heard these things before, Mike Co., especially from the Japanese newspapers, which, you know, supposedly have their ears to the ground to the supply supply chain um, that exists out in Asia. What do you make of this? So uh, two quick things about this. I mean, first of all, my biggest concern would take place if we saw essentially concerns about or the desire to start slowing production because we saw people transitioning to competing devices, and that is not the case here. The other thing is that when I read this, I I saw that it was the iPhone SE, which I think is just a subset, and I'm not sure that it's the highest price subset. Uh, You know, as long as the, you know, the demand essentially for Apple products as a percentage of the overall mobile devices market remains unchanged or continues to grow, I don't really see why this is such a huge negative. Obviously, there have been some pretty significant uh, setbacks in terms of supply chain and things like that for a lot of uh, technology providers. I think of this as more of as a pause. I don't see this really affecting Apple's market share at all, and that's what I'm keeping my eye on. The SC, of course, being the cheaper phone. I mean, revenues could be down, Karen. Maybe margins would be higher, actually. For the cheaper phone? No, if, oh. if, if, if 20% oh, oh. of the cheaper phone production the mix. works. Sure. Right, the mix okay. would be better. The mix would change, right. But I, I agree with, I mean, Mike's point is, to me, the main one, is it a demand issue or supply issue, right? I sort of would think this is a supply issue. Mm-hmm. Then we get back to, you know, is it, uh, is it denied or delayed, that sale? I would think just delayed. So, you know, I'm long the stock. It's certainly not the cheapest thing I own by a lot, but I wouldn't trade out of it on a story like this. Yeah. When I think about Apple today, also on a day, and we're going to talk markets with Tony Dwyer a little later in the show, but on a day when the the story in the bond market was really that, again, you know, we're seeing the the yield curve invert, et cetera. The reason I'm bringing up Apple in this conversation is because the flight to quality in big cap tech is is undeniable. And and we just had this conversation about Tesla and as a dividend, you know, paying divs, you know, why, et cetera. I mean, Apple is a company that has so many levers to pull. And even during a period where we think demand could be an issue, Apple can be buying back stock. They can be increasing dividend. Their capital markets and their, their essentially their, their capital structure dynamics are so different than any other company in the world that this is a reason why I think even on a day like this, um, if this was a headline that could have taken Apple down, like I, I think their, their fiscal uh, numbers that come out in, you know, whatever we, uh, six weeks away are, are, are really the story that people are going to want to see on margins and where demand is for a bunch of products that I think have been pulled forward. Yeah, I think the reaction in the stock, Steve, was the most, I don't want to say surprising thing about it, but it it tells you a lot about how the markets treat these sorts of rumors. We hear them time and time again about suppliers getting orders to cut whatever, you know, because of uh, demand issues or whatever it is. Just cut production. Right. So, so the, I'll give you the negative. I'm, st- I'm still long Apple. I, I intend on staying long Apple. The only negative that I see is it's had an incredible bounce off the recent low. 
Today was an outside day, so technically it made a higher high and a lower low than the previous day, which means that it's, it should, in theory, break trend. If it breaks trend, the trend has been up. So you don't want to see it break trend. You want a continuation of the process. But everyone's going to be talking about that 182.86 number yet again. That's the $3 trillion market cap level that it was at before it faded. The other thing I think people are going to start talking about is the auto recurring sales event to make it like a subscription stock. Are you going to want to do the auto subscription stock for your hardware? Maybe, maybe not. But I think Apple's getting ahead of the service headwind that potentially could be coming at them. Well, I I shouldn't say potentially. That's been coming at them regarding the Apple Store for years. But that's going to be an ongoing ongoing headwind for years. I would stay long Apple and look for $200 sooner rather than later, even though technically you could get a little bit of a backpedal. Are you saying that they came out with the subscription hardware plan, Steve, because they they know that services are going to slow dramatically? No, I don't think they I don't think they're going to uh, slow. But I do think that the rhetoric is out there. And I guess services are somewhere around 18 percent of total revenues right now. Maybe I'm a little bit shy. Maybe it's more like 19 percent. I don't think they're going to slow dramatically But that is the potential, and that is definitely the rhetoric, and I think they want to stay ahead of that. Just one more thing on that subscription. It makes me wonder, do they want to get into your pocketbook more? Do they want to have you paying monthly, and do they want to have you, you know, uh, Apple Pay? Do they want to provide financing? Hmm. You know, they have the credit card. Of course they do. They want want into my pocketbook. I'll tell you that, Karen. Um, (laughs) No, 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 but if you think about Apple Plus as a a subscription service, too, I mean, you think about it, you you brought up the whole dynamic of of winning the best picture. Um, I I just think Apple, as a company that has a services... target on everything that you're doing and places they can on you. I, I think the fact that the media companies are now dominated by Netflix, uh, Amazon, and, and Apple is, is extraordinary and under, underappreciated the day after the Oscars. Well, how should we interpret Apple's win? I mean, we mentioned that Apple's been in the business for, what, three years or so as a content producer with, with Apple Plus. And so should the other streamers be more highly valued or should we look at them as potentially the next studio? Should um, folks like a Disney or a Comcast be worried because their studios have much stiffer competition um, from the likes of, of an Apple and, and Netflix, Mike? No, I don't really think so. I mean, here this is the thing. I mean, do we sit and watch the uh, the Oscars every single year and then figure out, okay, well, you know, whichever whichever studio won, that, that's the one that we're going to go and chase the stock now? I, I don't really think that's <laughs> the way, you know, investors think about things. I mean, you won't, if you have a big blockbuster, uh, that's uh, that's another story. We do see people, and we often see the Reddit crowd, for example, start chasing that a little bit. But you know, at the end of the day, we're more interested in profit margins and and revenues and and ticket sales than I think we are uh, the number of of shiny trophies. Although, uh, you know, if you're in Karen's family, maybe that's <laughs> the thing that you're paying a lot of attention to as well, because you seem to be accumulating them. I mean, two shiny, two shiny trophies yeah, in your yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. That's really Congratulations. very awesome. cool. Very cool. I had nothing at all to do with any of it, sadly. But uh, one more thing, though. These <laughs> movies, I mean, those 10 nominations were a lot of small movies, mm-hmm. right? And then they had that five highlights, people's favorite. They were all like Avengers this and right. Marvel that and blow up this. 
And that's where the giant, those tentpole movies are. Yeah, I, but, I mean, Netflix had 27 nominations or something like that. I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and as someone that at one point called Netflix just the pipes and, and really a, a, a conduit. And now and, an owner of Netflix and shares. And now an owner of Netflix shares <laughs> and now an owner of Disney shares and an owner of Apple shares so and an owner of Amazon shares. So, I mean, I, I like my exposure to both old school media and new school media. But, but I, I do think it is about content. I, I do think that uh, an argument, and I love Disney's content. I think there's studio is unrivaled in their ability to roll out things that are massive and the flywheel and all of that. But to say that Apple's uh, you know, getting best picture isn't a seminal moment, I-, I think, for Hollywood, I think it is. And-, and I think it's a really important in terms of driving talent. They could always have overpaid. But now I think this is a studio that has to be respected differently. All right. Coming up, stocks closing out the day in the green. The Nasdaq up more than a percent. So where should you park your money? Counterparts Tony Dwyer joins us in just a few to help navigate the markets. The risks, he says, Wall Street is overestimating. But first, Financial fallout, banks in the red as spreads get close to zero, and regionals are getting the worst of it. The details next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bank stocks taking a hit today with the KRE Regional Bank Index dropping more than a percent. The move coming as the spread between 30 and five-year treasuries closed the day negative for the first time since 2006. Morgan Stanley downgrading finances today, Karen. You've made the point often that it's not just about the spread, but that's the way banks trade. Right. It doesn't matter that they're not one giant book of twos versus tens <laughs> or whatever the spread is. But... Um, So the only good thing, I think, about going into bank earnings, which are the first ones out of the gate uh, when we announce quarterly earnings, is that the bar will be low. I mean, when you think about this year, uh, this time last year, SPACs were on fire, capital markets was going crazy, and you had a much steeper curve. So this is going to be not so easy for them. That doesn't mean that they can't make money. They can, but... Um, the bar, I think, will be lowered. Normally, it's been high in the last five quarters, and no matter what they put out, the street was disappointed. Maybe this will be the reverse. I'm still along the bank stocks. We haven't seen a credit contagion like I thought was possible or was built into some of the sell-off. 
maybe we still will. The, uh, who knows? I, I, I think banks trade as if they are waiting for something and, and you know, pardon the, the metaphor, so things to float to the surface. So I, I think, and I, I don't mean, I, I mean, so the unknown contagion save me from myself. Yes, the, 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 the point is that you have a, 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 you've had a rubber duck. You've had a massive move, though, in, in yields, a, the type of a move. And we talk about velocity of moves all the time. And, and many folks that are playing in the fixed income markets, but specifically the treasury markets, uh, are highly, highly levered. And, and the sense that no one is escaping from this. Again, think about the moves we've had. Uh, banks were, excuse me, bonds were down in the first quarter a little bit. Now, they've never had a quarter uh, where they've lost six and a half percent to start the year ever. So this is a case where I do think that banks uh, are exposed to some of this risk. I do think that the yield curve, uh, what Karen says, is everything is tethered to the 10-year. And, and the 530s inversion is concerning. People are waiting for 2s, 10s to invert. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to make sense if we had seen such volatility in various asset classes, Grosso, and not seen any blow-ups or any sort of impact on banks, even if it's their clients yeah, it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't and their make counterparties. Sense. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but I, I, I think the, it was so telegraphed when we heard the, uh, Chairman Powell talk about being aggressive to fight inflation. So all of these bank charts, all of them technically are a mess. Bank America and Wells Fargo actually look like they're trying to fight back uh, a little bit of an uphill battle here. But just think about what the Fed is trying to do. The Fed, well, and we'll talk to, the, uh, to Tony Dwyer about this. The Fed is trying to slow down the economy. That's not great for banks. So that's not great for loan growth. Now, with everything going on geopolitically, do you want to be starting a business or taking out a loan right now? Or you're probably going to wait and see. The banks are feeling that pressure and they're feeling a possible recession out on the horizon. So that's what I'm seeing in the technicals. We'll ask Tony what he thinks about about a recession possibility. Yeah, there's all this volatility in, in various things, Mike. And then there's also the, a concern possibly about the consumer and what they're willing to spend. And if they're actually starting to, you know, whittle away the big savings lump sum that they accumulated over the pandemic because they're grappling with higher costs left and right. Well, of course, even if they did whittle away at some of the accumulated savings that, that people sort of got during the pandemic, I mean, we haven't really gotten back to trend, though, yet, have we? I mean, that's that's part of the issue, which to me speaks to still potentially some buying power from consumers. The thing that obviously I think for a lot of us that have been in the markets for a while that I look at, you know, I'm looking at the 10 year and I'm thinking, OK, if when is it going above 3 percent, 3 percent would be sort of a, a concrete violation of, you know, the 30 plus year bull market. 40 plus year bull market that we've seen in bonds. I say 30 because that's about how long I've been in the business. But of course, it predated my arrival. You know, that's really the reversal in a long term trend that I think a lot of us are wondering how that shakes out. And the suspicion is probably not very well, because when you have a big book of financial assets, especially things like credit assets, fixed income assets, those don't benefit if you're long duration from increases in the 10 year rate. And that's the sensitivity, I think, maybe that uh, Tim was talking about. Uh, you know, we're kind of waiting to see what the implications are. Somebody is probably out there with exposure to that, and it's going to be ugly uh, when we see it. Really quick, though, the 30-year mortgage has broken that 40-year downtrend, and that has ramifications for a lot of different parts of the economy. So I hear you, Mike. It is 40 years and twos and tens, and now the 30-year uh, has broken it. They haven't yet, but I think they will. 
All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Crude crushed. Oil slipping as demand fears spark up. So is the economy headed for a slowdown? The details next. Plus, grab your popcorn. AMC's curious deals could continue. What the CEO said on the theater's big plans. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oil prices sliding today on concerns over demand disruption. Shanghai issuing new lockdowns due to a rise in COVID-19 cases. The oil price dip may ease inflation fears in the market, at least temporarily. But does it also mean an economic slowdown could be coming? Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity's chief market strategist. Tony, great to see you. It's been a while. You say the market's... The markets are like scaredy cats. I mean, those are my words. Uh, But they're overestimating certain fears at this point. Well, Mel, I think the biggest fear that it's overestimating at this point is the 210 flattening or the five year to 30 year. And I understand why we use that. It is very useful at times. But I think the most important thing we could talk about is why do we use the yield curve? Because it measures the difference between what a bank or lending institution gets its money at, what they have to pay versus what they charge or invested at. That spread is how much money they make. So the real thrust of the banks or lending institutions liquidity has come from deposits. So since February of 2020, there has been actually $4.75 trillion, trillion dollars put into commercial bank deposits. So we're using the three-month and five-year, the average duration according to the uh, Barclays Aggregate Index, is about six and a half years. So we're measuring what the banks are getting their money at, the deposit rate, three month, versus what they're lending it or investing it at. And that's steepened. So the fear is definitely there. Asia seems to be a mess with more lockdowns. Europe is heading toward a recession, if not in one, because of a once in a generation ground war there. And the U.S. is being affected by higher rates. So certainly it's slowing down. But we don't look for a recession because that yield curve that's driving the lending is still very positive. Tony, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on. Do you think that uh, how do you think the yield curve will change depending on what the Fed does? If we see 50, let's say the next two meetings, is this already priced in? Is it not? What do you think? I I think it's priced in. Right At this point, everybody's talking about so many rate hikes. Karen, when we look back at the only time that there's been this divergence that I can find, this kind of divergence in the 210 yield curve versus the three-month, five-year yield curve was 1994, when Alan Greenspan was so fearful of, of inflation that they hiked rates seven times in a row 
Two of them were 50 basis points, and then there was a 75. They doubled rates. The market acted similarly in that you had a 10% crunch in the beginning of the year, a lot of choppiness around the end of the first quarter, rallied into August almost to a new high, and then that slower economic backdrop hit it again toward December, so it retested the low, and then you didn't look back for four years. So I think we're in this environment. We've called it tumultuous. There's no question. Inflation's high. Rates are going higher. The Fed's in a box. No, no matter the slowdown, they've got to raise rates. So, Tony, it's Steve. Good to be with you. So when, hey, you, when you look at this, I used to remember you saying that whatever uh, du jour rate inversion that you're looking at, it only signaled the recession maybe 18 to 24 months later. And the market usually moves up about 15 percent between then and the actual recession. Recessions are normal, healthy, and natural. Your words. When you look at what uh, Chairman Powell is doing right now, do you think he is just being extremely hawkish with his rhetoric and where, where the balance sheet reductions is actually going to be another rate hike so that he's front loading so the market can catch up and the back end of this, he's going to come out and be a lot more dovish than his rhetoric would assume? Well, I, I think that's going to ultimately be the case, Steve, because it, it, the Fed's in a box. They have two mandates, inflation and employment. There's no world in the next couple of months where they get better in terms of inflation. So the Fed is looking at this data. Remember, the data can change and the Fed could change pretty quickly. Just remember five months ago, not five years ago, five months ago, the Fed said that there will be a very long lag between when they stop adding to the balance sheet and when they do the initial rate hike. Well, unless that means five minutes, that changed. So five months from now, it's hard to say that your that your scenario, Steve, doesn't play itself out. For now, the Fed has to sound hawkish. They have to control inflation expectations, which were well anchored until a few weeks ago. What I find interesting is um, going back to to Mel's comments and what you guys were talking about earlier, the 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 market seems to be almost pricing in a a recession trade because the the areas that should do the best with higher rates have been lagging and the areas that are doing um, that should do the worst, the FANG stocks, the mega cap valuation names, they're doing better. It's interesting. If you look at the New York FANG index, I was looking at this on Bloomberg today, the 10-day rate of change has never been higher on the FANG index outperforming the S&P 500. That's in a higher rate environment. That tells me the market's beginning, going back to Karen's point, it's beginning to potentially price in some form of a recession. That's what happens in this kind of transition of monetary policy and economic activity. Tony, great to see you. Thanks. Thanks, Mel. Tony Dyer, Canaccord. Mike, is that the message of the markets in your view? Uh, Well, I would say that at any point of uncertainty, one of the things that you should be looking for is idiosyncratic uh, growth. You know, the tech uh, names have represented that. I I don't know about names like uh, Netflix uh, necessarily, which uh, is part of FANG, but the G in there is definitely appealing to me. Uh, You know, Alphabet, I don't see any reason why people aren't piling into that. I mean, I, I think that's still down as I looked at today's close. I think it's off maybe 150 basis points on the year, and Amazon just ticked into the green. But, you know, to me, of those two, I would much favor being in Alphabet. I mean, you know, if you're thinking to yourself, what do I want to be in? 
at a market multiple, how about uh, solid and idiosyncratic growth? And that's what it represents. Yeah, I, I agree on that. And I own Google. I also think Netflix at a 0.9 peg ratio, again, that's price to earnings growth, is, is, is the same price really as Google. It, it's actually particularly cheap. And, and, and I also think that we're now back to down 5% off the all-time highs in the middle of an aggressive Fed hike. Uh, and I think markets have climbed that wall of worry. I think there's a lot what's going on. We all know where sentiment was three weeks ago. We all know that we've now moved 12% higher on NASDAQ stocks. So the question is, we owe always get a, a multiple correction in a tightening cycle, uh, typically two turns or more. We certainly had gotten that as of where we were a few weeks ago. Uh, I do think you're in a case, and there's a chart out there, I don't know if we have it out there, but Goldman had a report talking about buyback activity. And again, in an environment where you have uh, you know, less uh, opportunity for growth and, or companies that actually are concerned about the volatility in the environment, they are buying back stocks. Goldman says they're going to buy back $319 billion, uh, in stocks this year, which would be an all-time record. Coming up, movies, mining, and maybe more. AMC surging nearly 45% of CEO Adam Aaron digs into the theater chain's future plans. What he says is next for the company, plus crypto cruising higher, Bitcoin surging, and nearing the $50,000 mark. Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenshine will join us next to break down the moves. Plenty more Fast Money Ahead. Back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. In addition to the money that Eric Sprott put in, who's a gold and silver mining expert, so we have some real credibility in the investment in Highcroft because if it wasn't uh, an impressive uh, mining potential, uh, Sprott wouldn't be there with us with his own money uh, and the money we put in. But like we just raised another $139 million in nine trading days. We are going to leave the running of the gold and silver mining company to the experts. Uh, we're experts in balance sheets. That was AMC CEO Adam Aaron earlier today on CNBC talking about the movie theater chain's recent investment in Highcroft Mining. Shares of AMC up almost 45% today, today alone, after Aaron suggested more quote-unquote transformational deals might be coming. I like at the end, he says that they're, they are an expert in uh, balance sheets. <laughs> Apparently they are, Karen. We are, by the way, seeing a 12.5% pop in shares of Highcroft in the after-hour session. We mentioned that because in the context of the story, we understand Highcroft is a very small stock. Um, but it's important to note that action within this story. Karen. I just find this so amazing. I mean, I have no position in Highcroft, no position in, in AMC. Just the idea that they would use their pile of cash, which he keeps referring to, $1.8 billion, seemingly ignoring the far more huge pile of debt is kind of astounding to me. And looking through some of the filings today, reading them more closely, they were actually using some of the money to pay off Highcroft debt, which I find staggering that AMC, with so much debt, they are a junk-rated issuer. Right. So they pay a lot in interest. Yes. Would pay off somebody else's debt that's kind of staggering to me. Indirectly, they're doing. Maybe their, their money isn't directly going to pay it off, but money raised through this offering is used to pay off debt. That's astounding to me. And without his and Sprott's 
uh, investment, we wouldn't have this ATM, this at the, at the market issuance of shares. I find the whole thing so crazy. And I keep coming back to the board when he presents this idea. Maybe someone brought right. it to him, who knows, and them sitting around deciding, yes, this is the direction we should take. Buy a gold miner. Right? Nothing says buy a gold miner like a giant indebted balance sheet. Well, another transformational deal implies that this was transformational. Look, Eric Sprott is the real deal. I want to be clear. I've been investing in commodities a long time. And and so if Eric saw something in Highcroft, um, not a company I've done a lot of work on, as Mel pointed out, a small gold mining company that has, you know, had had some balance sheet issues. uh, I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. How AMC gets involved? Give them the benefit of the doubt, too, because I, I do think that there's a, an opportunity to co-invest. This doesn't change uh, the debt-laden status of this company, doesn't really change the, the core business and, okay. I think, the outlook for that. We're looking at this from a fundamental standpoint, oh, but this sorry. is, a, oh. this is mm-hmm. a stock that jumped on the retail bandwagon, and they're bringing that retail magic to HYMC, and here we have it. It is up. It was up. 81% in today's session, not even including the 10% plus pop in the after-hour session, Mike. This is, a, this is separate, right? This, is, this should not be judged by normal fundamental standards, should it? There is a little bit of a fundamental element here that normally, mm. you know, we didn't anticipate that when you probably took any courses on finance, which is a huge, huge disconnect between the cost of equity capital and the cost of debt capital. And right now, whenever they make this kind of a statement, essentially, I mean, take a look at what's happening. If they can continue to do additional secondaries and raise capital this way, then this is probably a decent strategy. I mean, you're basically playing off of the enthusiasm for a story to elevate your stock price. You can raise some capital that way and then go about paying down that debt, which would make sense under any other circumstance. But because of this weird sort of arbitrage that's going on, It makes a little bit of sense. I mean, for them to say, for example, and I know that they did talk about this earlier today. He was talking to Jim Cramer about it. You know, should we you know, be trying to take this as an opportunity to take this money and expand in our existing business, a business that wasn't making money before all of this, before the pandemic? The answer to that is no. Take a little bit of money, sell it into something sexy, get people to jump your socks. So, I mean, I I think that's what's going on is a little bit of, uh, you know, capital structure arbitrage that they're getting to play right now. But that's only going to last for as long as it does, I guess. But it's here now, and here we have it. For the record, Mike Coe actually saying that this makes a little bit of sense. I think it's an important day it's here. Real. I mean, I, this it, retail president that you talk about all right. the time, these apes, you got to respect them. If that's this what they're going to do, I would not get in the way. I just find it kind of crazy, but retail is very different than it used to be. Yep. Coming up, Bitcoin boom. Today's jump, bringing the crypto positive for the year. So can the run continue? Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein will join us next to break down these moves. Plus, we're gearing up for a big earnings report tomorrow. Lululemon on deck. So how should you trade the name? The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin bouncing back big, going positive for the year. So is this rally here to last? Let's bring in Grayscale Investment CEO Michael Sonnenschein, the man pushing hard for the next Bitcoin ETF. Michael, great to have you with us. Great to be here. I actually want to start off with GBTC, which is trading currently at about a 20 percent discount to its net asset value. Um, you have said in, in other interviews that if the SEC rejects your your uh, plan to convert to an ETF that you would explore all options. What does that include? 
Well, I think really, Melissa, this is really about continuing to work proactively with the SEC. Grayscale's history around GBTC goes all the way back to 2016. And so working together to develop the guidelines for becoming an SEC reporting company and now pushing those boundaries to have the SEC even out the playing field for us to have GBTC become an ETF. And so we will continue to put the full resources of Grayscale behind this initiative. But we're really now calling on investors to partake in this process as well. What is the reasoning that you've gone from the SEC as to why they're hesitant about this? And, and what are your counter arguments? Well, the SEC has cited time and again concerns over the underlying Bitcoin market, the potential for fraud and manipulation or a lack of surveillance in the underlying Bitcoin market. Now what we find ourselves is a world in which there are Bitcoin futures ETFs, but still a rejection of the underlying Bitcoin spot ETFs like GBTC's application. And while it's a very, very important milestone for us to have Bitcoin futures ETFs here in the U.S., the futures contract itself does not solve any of the underlying concerns that the SEC may have about Bitcoin. And thus, we really think the SEC should do the right thing, protect investors and allow both of these product types in the market. So when you say all options, does that include a lawsuit? I mean, what are what is the recourse for a company like yours if the SEC does eventually reject? I don't want to say eventually. Should the SEC eventually reject the bid? There are certainly the options um, to get into a uh, into legal arguments around this. One of the most prevalent uh, comment letters that has been submitted now around the GBTC conversion is actually the potential for uh, an APA violation where a regulator is not looking at two like issues through the exact same lens. So come July, all options are certainly on the table. But between now and that time, again, it's really important that all GBTC holders participate in this process. So what is the what is the marketing sort of aspect of this all your your GBTC product versus um, the the current products on the market, the futures um, ETFs, the futures products? I mean, is it that if you buy GBTC here, you're getting a discount to to Bitcoin and that eventually that premium will close and you get a 20 percent shot higher? Or, I mean, this is not the product that most closely tracks Bitcoin. Well, there are certain differences between the futures products and the potential for a spot ETF, right? You have roll costs um, and other elements of the futures products that do erode away at the investor's ability to effectively track Bitcoin. Certainly today, investors have the opportunity to buy Bitcoin in the spot market or buy Bitcoin exposure through GBTC uh, you know, at 80 cents on the dollar. And one would expect that to converge with net asset value if it's approved to be an ETF. But importantly today, Melissa, there are over 800,000 accounts in the U.S. that own GBTC today, retirement accounts, ETFs, mutual funds across all 50 states. And so we really want to encourage, again, investor participation and understand that they have an important role to play here as the SEC weighs this important decision. All right, Michael, great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Michael Sonnenschein of Grayscale. Um, we spent a lot, we spent time on this because there is this issue. If you own GBTC, there is a, a cohort of people who own this thing thinking that that will, that gap will close. Right, exactly. You'll yeah. get a 20% pop, theoretically, if the SEC approves an ETF. And we're waiting here.
I'll be I'll be shocked that they don't approve the ETF at some mm. point. And, and I think it's ultimately fantastic for the asset class. Obviously, um, I, I think, you know, regulation is not the issue. Michael just said it. You know, they, they welcome working with the SEC. I, I you know, the decentralized nature of this does not mean uh, it should be run roughshod. And, and I also always say I, I also want my Treasury to know where, you know, and keep track of, of you know, the currency and the exchanges between the dollars. So ultimately, I will point out also that Bitcoin is up about 35 percent since Russia invaded Ukraine. And I think there is some correlation between central banks and other players around the world saying they don't agree with Russia. But the fact that the U.S. can freeze Russian assets, that the Europeans can freeze assets, um, I think that bothers the Chinese. I think it bothers a lot of other people. And I do think it's dollar negative. And I do think it's Bitcoin positive. And then the other factors that are dollar negative, of course, central banks wanting to potentially move away from the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency grass. So all this, you know, bullish for Bitcoin here as we sit at these key levels. Yeah, I think it's, it's all bullish for all crypto. I actually own the, the Grayscale Ethereum Trust. That's been up uh, pretty aggressively as well pretty recently. But I think the takeaway that, that Michael had just said and Tim touched on the regulators seem to be warming to this idea, and it's no longer this thing out in the stratosphere. This is happening, and we're gaining market share, and it's bullish. All right. Coming up, Lulu on deck to report earnings tomorrow. We're diving into the name and finding out if shares are ready to rebound. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Lululemon earnings on deck. The athleisure company down about 15% on the year, but options traders are feeling pretty bullish ahead of earnings tomorrow. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, so we saw more than three times the average daily options volume in Lululemon today. Bullish bets outpacing bearish ones by about two to one. And we saw the most activity in the weekly 3.30 strike calls. Those were trading for about 11 and a half bucks. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 7.5% higher or lower by the end of the week. But it seems the buyers of these calls are betting that that move is going to be to the upside. All right. Uh, be sure to tune into the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Trade time, Mike. Yeah, I'm going to go with Ford. Steve Grasso. I'll go on the same theme. Tesla, I'm looking for it to move up about 15% back to that 1240 level. Tim Seymour. Massive pullback in oil. This is not a time to run out of the oil services trade. There's going to be a lot of drilling going on. I do think you want to stay in this trade. Karen Feinerman. Yep, I like Kohl's. I think there's a real process underway. And if there's a deal, which I think there will be, the stock will go up from here. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.